Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Volume 15, Chapter 39. We Travel by Glacier. A guidebook is a queer thing. The reader has just seen what a man who undertakes the great ascent from Zermatt to the Riffelberg Hotel must experience. Yet Baedeker makes these strange statements concerning this matter. 1. Distance. 3 hours. 2. The road cannot be mistaken. 3. Guide unnecessary. 4. Distance from Riffelberg Hotel to the Gorner Grat, 1 hour and a half. 5. Ascent simple and easy. Guide unnecessary. 6. Elevation of Zermatt above sea level. 5,315 feet. 7. Elevation of Riffelberg Hotel above sea level, 8,429 feet. 8. Elevation of the Gorner Grot above sea level, 10,289 feet. I have pretty effectually throttled these errors by sending him the following demonstrated facts. 1. Distance from Zermatt to Riffelberg Hotel, seven days. Two, the road can be mistaken. If I am the first that did it, I want the credit of that too. Three, guides are necessary, for none but a native can read those fingerboards. Four, the estimate of the elevation of several localities above sea level is pretty correct, for Baedeker. He only misses it by about 180 or 90,000 feet. I found my arnica invaluable. My men were suffering excruciatingly from the friction of sitting down so much. During two or three days, not one of them was able to do more than lie down or walk about. Yet so effective was the arnica that on the 4th all were able to sit up. I consider that more than anything else. I owe the success of our great undertaking to Arnica and Paragoric. My men are being restored to health and strength. My main perplexity now is how to get them down the mountain again. I was not willing to expose the brave fellows to the perils, fatigues, and hardships of that fearful route again if it could be helped. Fierce, I, first, I thought of balloons, but of course I had to give that idea up, for balloons were not procurable. I thought of several other expedients, but upon consideration discarded them for cause. But at last I hit it. I was aware that the movement of glaciers is an established fact, for I had read it in Baedeker. So I resolved to take passage from Zermatt on the Great Gorner Glacier. Okay, the next thing was how to get down the glacier comfortably, for the mule road to it was long and winding and wearisome. I set my mind to work and soon thought out a plan. One looks straight down upon the vast frozen river called the Gorner Glacier from the Gorner Grot, a sheer precipice 1,200 feet high. We had 144 umbrellas, and what is an umbrella but a parachute? I mentioned this noble idea to Harris with enthusiasm, and was about to order the expedition to form on the Gorner Grot with their umbrellas and prepare for flight by platoons, each platoon in command of a guide, 
When Harris stopped me and urged me not to be too hasty, he asked me if this method of descending the Alps had ever been tried before. I said no. I had not heard of an instance. Then, in his opinion, it was a matter of considerable gravity. In his opinion, it would not be well to send the whole command over the cliff at once. A better way would be to send down a single individual first and see how he fared. I saw the wisdom of this idea instantly. I said as much and thanked my agent cordially and told him to take his umbrella and try the thing right away and wave his hat when he got down to the bottom. And then I would ship the rest right along. Harris was greatly touched with this bark of confidence and said so in a voice that had a perceptible tremble in it. But at the same time, he said he did not feel himself worthy of so conspicuous a favor that it might cause jealousy in the command for there were plenty who would not hesitate to say he had used underhanded means to get the appointment, whereas his conscience would bear him witness that he had not sought it at all, nor even in his secret heart desired it. I said these words did him extreme credit, but that he must not throw away the imperishable distinction of being the first man to descend an alp by parachute, simply to save the feelings of some envious underlings. No, I said, he must accept the appointment. It was no longer an invitation. It was a command. He thanked me with effusion and said that by putting the thing in this form removed every objection. He retired and soon returned with his umbrella, his eye flaming with gratitude and his cheeks pallid with joy. Just then the head guide passed along. Harris's expression changed to one of infinite tenderness and he said, that man did me a cruel injury four days ago. I said in my heart he should live to perceive and confess that the only noble revenge a man can take upon his enemy is to return good for evil. I resign in his favor. Appoint him. I threw my arms around the generous fellow and said, Harris, you are the noblest soul that lives. You shall not regret this sublime act. Neither shall the world fail to know of it. You shall have opportunity far transcending this one, too, if I live. Remember that. I called the head guide to me and appointed him on the spot, but the thing aroused no enthusiasm in him. He did not take to the idea at all. He said, Tie myself to an umbrella and jump over the Gonograt. <laughs> Excuse me, there are a great many pleasanter roles to the devil than that. Upon a discussion of the subject with him, it appeared that he considered the project distinctly and decidedly dangerous. I was not convinced, yet I was not willing to try the experiment in any risky way, that is, in a way that might cripple the strength and efficiency of the expedition. I was at about my wit's end when it occurred to me to try it on the Latinist. He was called in, but he declined on the plea of inexperience, diffidence in public, lack of curiosity, and I didn't know what all. Another man declined on account of a cold in the head, thought he ought to avoid exposure. Another could not jump well, never could jump well, did not believe he could jump so far without long and patient practice. Another was afraid it was going to rain and that his umbrella had a hole in it. Everybody had an excuse. The result was what the reader has by this time guessed. The most magnificent idea that was ever conceived had to be abandoned from sheer lack 
of a person with enterprise enough to carry it out. Yeah, I actually had to give that thing up. While doubtless I should live to see somebody use it and take all the credit from me. Well, I had to go overland. There was no other way. I marched the expedition down the steep and tedious mule path and took up a good position as I could upon the middle of the glacier, because Baedeker said the middle part travels the fastest. As a measure of economy, however, I put some of the heavier baggage on the shoreward parts to go as slow freight. I waited and waited, but the glacier did not move. Night was coming on. The darkness began to gather. Still, we did not budge. It occurred to me then that there might be a timetable in Baedeker. It would be well to find out the hours of starting. I called for the book. It could not be found. Bradshaw would certainly contain a timetable, but no Bradshaw could be found. Very well, then. I must make the best of a bad situation. So I pitched the tents, picketed the animals, milked the cows, had supper, paragoricked the men, established the watch, and went to bed, with orders to call me as soon as we might come in sight of Zermatt. I woke about half-past ten the next morning and looked around. We hadn't budged a peg. At first I could not understand it. Then it occurred to me that the old thing must be aground. So I cut down some trees and rigged a spar on the starboard and another on the port side and fooled away upward for upwards of three hours trying to spark her off. But it was no use. She was half a mile wide and fifteen or twenty miles long, and there was no telling just whereabouts she was aground. The men began to show uneasiness, too, and presently they came flying to me with ashy faces, saying she had sprung a leak. Nothing but my cool behavior at this critical time saved us from another panic. I ordered them to show me the place. They led me to a spot where a huge boulder lay in a deep pool of clear and brilliant water. It looked like a pretty bad leak, and I kept that to myself. I made a pump and set the men to work to pump out the glacier. We made a success of it. I perceived then that it was not a leak at all. This boulder had descended from a precipice and stopped on the ice in the middle of the glacier. The sun had warmed it up every day, and consequently it had melted its way deeper and deeper into the ice, until at last it reposed as we had found it, in a deep pool of the clearest, coldest water. Presently, Baedeker was found again, and I hunted eagerly for the timetable. There was none. The book simply said that the glacier was moving all the time. This was satisfactory, so I shut the book up and chose a good position to view the scenery as we passed along. I stood there for some time enjoying the trip, but at last it occurred to me that we did not seem to be gaining anything on the scenery. I said to myself, this confounded old thing's aground again for sure, and opened Baedeker to see if I could run across any remedy for these annoying interruptions. I soon found a sentence which threw a dazzling light upon the matter. It said, The Gorner Glacier travels at an average rate of a little less than an inch a day. I have seldom felt so outraged. I have seldom had my confidence so wantonly betrayed. I made a small calculation. One inch a day, say thirty feet a year, estimated the distance to Zermatt, 
three and one eighteenth miles. Time required to go by glacier, a little over 500 years? I said to myself, I could walk that quicker. And before I will patronize such a fraud as this, I will do just that. When I revealed to Harris the fact that the passenger part of this glacier, the central part, the Lightning Express, so to speak, was not due in Zermatt till summer of 2378, and that the baggage coming along the slow edge would arrive some generations later, he burst out with, That is European management all over. An inch a day. Think of it. Five hundred years to go a trifle over three miles. But I am not surprised. It's a Catholic glacier after all. You can tell by the look of it. And the management. I said no. I believed nothing but the extreme end of it was the Catholic captain. Well then, it's a government glacier, said Harris. It's all the same. Over here the government runs everything. So everything's slow. Slow and ill-managed. But with us, everything's done by private enterprise. And then there ain't much lolling around. You can depend on it. I wish Tom Scott could get his hands on this torpid old slab once. You'd see it take a different gait from this. I said I was sure he would increase the speed if there was trade enough to justify it. He'd make trade, said Harris. That's the difference between governments and individuals. Governments don't care. Individuals do. Tom Scott would take care of all the trade. Two years, Gordon stock would go to 200. Inside of two more, you'd see all the other glaciers under the hammer for taxes. After a reflective pause, Harris added, A little less than an inch a day. A little less than an inch, mind you. Well, I'm losing my reverence for glaciers. I was feeling much the same way myself. I have traveled by canal boat, ox wagon, raft, and by the Ephesus and Smyrna Railway. But when it comes down to a good, solid, slow motion, I bet my money on the glacier. As a means of passenger transportation, I consider the glacier as a failure. But as a vehicle of slow freight, I think she fits the bill. In the matter of putting the fine shades on that business, I judge she could teach the Germans something. I ordered the men to break camp and prepare for the land journey to Zermatt. At this moment, a most interesting find was made. A dark object, embedded in the glacial ice. We cut it out with ice axes, and it proved to be a piece of undressed skin of some animal. A hair trunk, perhaps. But a closer inspection disabled the hair trunk theory, and further discussion and examination exploded it entirely. That is, in the opinion of all the scientists, except the one who had advanced it. This one clung to his theory with affectionate fidelity, characteristic of originators of scientific theories, and afterwards won many of the first scientists of the age to his view by the very able pamphlet which he wrote, entitled, Evidences Going to Show That the Hair Trunk in a Wild State Belonged to the Early Glacial Period and Roamed the Wastes of chaos in the company with the cave bear, primeval man, and other oolithics of the old Silurian family. Each of our scientists had a theory of his own and put forward an animal of his own as a candidate for the skin. I sided with the geologist of the expedition in the belief that this patch of skin had once helped cover a Siberian elephant in some old forgotten age. 
But we divided there, the geologists believing that this discovery proved that Siberia had formerly been located where Switzerland is now, whereas I held the opinion that it merely proved that the primeval Swiss was not the dull savage he is represented to have been, but was a being of high intellectual development who liked to go to the menagerie. We arrived that evening after many hardships and adventures in some fields close to the great ice arch where the mad visp boils and surges out from under the foot of the great Gorner Glacier, and here we camped, our perils over and our magnificent undertaking successfully completed. We marched into Zermatt the next day and were received with the most lavish honors and applause. A document signed and sealed by the authorities was given to me, which established and endorsed the fact that I had made the ascent of the Riffelberg. This I wear around my neck, and it will be buried with me when I am no more. Chapter 40 Piteous Relics at Chamonix I am not so ignorant about glacial movement now as when I took passage on the Gorner Glacier. I have read up since, and I am aware that these vast bodies of ice do not travel at the same rate of speed. While the Gorner Glacier makes less than an inch a day, the Unterar Glacier makes as much as eight, and still other glaciers are said to go 12, 16, even 20 inches a day. One writer says that the slowest glacier travels 25 feet a year, and that the fastest, 400. What is a glacier? Well, it's easy to say it looks like a frozen river that occupies the bed of a winding gorge or gully between mountains, but that gives no notion of its vastness, for it is sometimes 600 feet thick. We are not accustomed to rivers 600 feet deep. No, our rivers are 6 feet, 20 feet, sometimes 50 feet deep. We are not quite able to grasp so large a fact as an ice river 600 feet deep. The glacier's surface is not smooth and level, but has deep swells and swelling elevations, and sometimes has the look of a tossing sea whose turbulent billows were frozen hard in the instant of their most violent motion. The glacier's surface is not a flawless mass, but is a river with cracks or crevices, some narrow, some gaping wide. Many a man, the victim of a slip or misstep, has plunged down one of these and met his death. Men have been fished out of them alive, but it was when they did not go to very great depths. The cold of the great depths would quickly stupefy a man, whether he was hurt or unhurt. These cracks do not go straight down either. One can seldom see more than twenty or forty feet down them. Consequently, men who have disappeared in them have been sought for in the hope that they had stopped within helping distance, whereas their case in most instances had really been hopeless from the beginning. In 1864, a party of tourists was descending Mount Blanc and while picking their way over one of the mighty glaciers of that lofty region and roped together as was proper, a young porter disengaged himself from the line and started across an ice bridge which spanned a crevasse. It broke under him with a crash, and he disappeared. The others could not see how deep he had gone, so it might be worthwhile to try and rescue him. A brave young guide 
named Michelle Payot, volunteered. Two ropes were made fast to his leather belt, and he bore the end of a third one in his hand to tie to the victim in case he found him. He was lowered into the crevasse, and he descended deeper and deeper between the clear blue walls of solid ice. He approached a bend in the crack and disappeared under it. Down and still down he went into this profound grave. When he had reached a depth of eighty feet, he passed under another bend in the crack, and then descended eighty feet lower as between perpendicular precipices. He arrived at this stage 160 feet below the surface of the glacier, and he peered through the twilight dimness and perceived that the chasm took another turn and stretched away at a steep slant to completely unknown depths, for his course was lost in darkness. What a place that was to be in, especially if that leather belt should break. The compression of the belt threatened to suffocate the intrepid fellow. He called to his friends to draw him up, but could not make them hear. They lowered him still deeper and deeper. As he jerked his third cord as vigorously as he could, his friends understood and dragged him out of those icy jaws of death. They then attached a bottle to a cord and sent it down 200 feet, but that found no bottom. It came up covered with congelations, evidence enough that even if the poor porter reached the bottom with unbroken bones, a swift death from cold was pretty darn certain anyway. A glacier is a stupendous, ever-progressing, resistless plow. It pushes ahead of it masses of boulders, which are packed together, and they stretch across the gorge right in front of it, like a long grave or a long, sharp roof. This is called a moraine. It also shoves out a moraine along each side of its course. Imposing as modern glaciers are, they are not so huge as they were at one time. For instance, Mr. Wimper says, At some very remote period, the valley of Aosta was occupied by a vast glacier which flowed down its entire length from Mount Blanc to the plain of Piedmont remained stationary or nearly so at its mouth for many centuries and deposited there enormous masses of debris. The length of this glacier exceeded 80 miles, and it drained a basin 25 to 35 miles across, bounded by the highest mountains of the Alps. The great peaks rose several thousand feet above the glaciers, and then, as now, shattered by sun and frost, poured down their showers of rocks and stones, in witness of which there are the immense piles of angular fragments that constitute the moraines of Ivrea. The moraines around Ivrea are of extraordinary dimensions. That which was on the left bank of the glacier is about thirteen miles long, and in some places rises to a height of two thousand one hundred and thirty feet above the floor of the valley. The terminal moraines, those which are pushed in front of the glacier, cover something like twenty square miles of country. At the mouth of the valley of Aosta, the thickness of the glacier must have been two thousand feet, and at its width, at least five and a quarter miles. It's not easy to get at a comprehension of a mass of ice like that. If one could cleave off the butt end of such a glacier, 
an oblong block two or three miles wide by five and a quarter long and 2,000 feet thick. He could completely hide the city of New York under it, and Trinity Steeple would only stick up relatively as far as a shingle nail would stick up into the bottom of a Saratoga trunk. The boulders from Mount Blanc upon the plain below Ivrea assure us that the glacier which transported them existed for a prodigious length of time. Their present distance from the cliffs from which they were derived is about 420,000 feet, and if we assume that they traveled at a rate of 400 feet per year, their journey must have occupied them no less than 1,055 years. In all probability, they didn't travel so fast. Glaciers are sometimes hurried out of their characteristic snail's pace. A marvelous spectacle is presented then. Mr. Wimper refers to a case which occurred in Iceland in 1721. It seems that in the neighborhood of the mountain of Kotluja, large bodies of water formed underneath or within the glaciers, either on account of the interior heat of the earth or from other causes, and at length acquired irresistible power tore the glaciers from their mooring on the land, and swept them over every obstacle into the sea. Prodigious masses of ice were thus borne for a distance of about ten miles over land in the space of just a few hours, and their bulk so enormous that they covered the sea for seven miles from the shore and remained aground in six hundred feet of water. The denudation of the land was upon a grand scale, all superficial accumulations were swept away, and the bedrock was exposed. It was described in graphic detail how all irregularities and depressions were obliterated, and a smooth surface of several miles area laid bare, and that this area had appeared as if it had been planed by a plane. The original account, translated from the Icelandic, said that the mountain-like ruins of this majestic glacier so covered the sea that as far as the eye could see, no open water was discoverable, even from the highest peaks. A monster wall or barrier of ice was built across a considerable stretch of land, too, by the strange eruption. One can form some idea of the altitude of this barrier of ice when it is mentioned that from Hofdebrecher Farm, which lies high up on a fjord, one could not see your life hopeful from the other side, which is a fell 640 feet in height, but in order to do so had to clamber up a mountain slope east of Hofdebrecher 1,200 feet high. These things will help the reader to understand why it is that a man who keeps company with glaciers comes to feel tolerably insignificant by and by. The elves and glaciers together are able to take every bit of conceit out of a man and reduce his self-importance to zero if he will only remain within the influence of their sublime presence long enough to give it a fair and reasonable chance to do its work. Alpine glaciers move, that is granted now by everybody. But there was a time when people scoffed at the idea. They said, you might as well expect leagues of solid rock to crawl along the ground as expect leagues of ice to do that. But proof after proof was furnished, and finally the world had to believe. A wise man not only said the glacier moved, but they timed its movements. They ciphered out a glacier's gait, and then said confidently that it would travel 
just so far in many years. There is a record of a striking and curious example of the accuracy which may be obtained in these reckonings. In 1820, the ascent of Mount Blanc was attempted by a Russian and two Englishmen with their seven guides. They had reached a prodigious altitude and were approaching the summit when an avalanche swept several of the party down a sharp slope of 200 feet and hurled five of them, all guides, into the crevasses of a glacier. The life of one of the five was saved by a long barometer which was strapped to his back. It bridged the crevasse and suspended in there until help came. The alpenstock or baton of another saved its owner in a similar way. Three men were lost, Pierre Balmont, Pierre Carriard, and Auguste Terraz. They had been hurled down into the fathomless great deeps of the crevasse. Dr. Forbes, the English geologist, had made frequent visits to Mont Blanc and had given much attention to the disputed question of the movement of glaciers. During one of these visits, he completed his estimates of the rate of movement of the glacier, which had swallowed up the three guides, and uttered prediction that the glacier would deliver up its dead at the foot of the mountain, 35 years from the time of the accident, possibly 40. A slow, dull journey, a movement imperceptible to any eye, but it proceeded nonetheless, and without cessation. It was a journey which a rolling stone would make in a few seconds. The lofty point of departure was visible from the village below in the valley. The prediction cut curiously close to the truth. Forty-one years after the catastrophe, the remains were cast forth at the foot of the glacier. I find an interesting account of the matter in the Histoire du Mont Blanc by Stephen Darve. I will condense this account as follows. On the 12th of August, 1861, at the hour of the close of Mass, a guide arrived out of breath at the Marie of Chamonix, and bearing on his shoulders a very lugubrious burden. It was a sack filled with human remains which he had gathered from the orifice of a crevice in the Glacier de Basson. He conjectured that these were the remains of the victims of the catastrophe of 1820, and an inquest immediately instituted by the local authorities soon demonstrated the correctness of his supposition. The contents of the sack were spread upon a long table and officially inventoried as follows. Portions of three human skulls, several tufts of black and blonde hair, a human jaw furnished with fine white teeth, a forearm and hand, all fingers of the latter intact. The flesh was white and fresh, both the arm and hand preserved to a degree of flexibility in the articulations. The ring finger had suffered a slight abrasion, and the stain of the blood was still visible and unchanged after 41 years. A left foot, the flesh white and fresh. Along with these fragments were portions of waistcoats, hats, hobnail shoes, and other clothing. A wing of a pigeon with black feathers, a fragment of alpenstock, a tin lantern, and lastly, a boiled leg of mutton, the only flesh among all the remains that exhaled its unpleasant odor. The guide said the mutton had no odor when he took it from the glacier, an hour's exposure to the sun had already begun to work decomposition upon it. 
Persons were called to identify these poor pathetic relics, and a touching scene ensued. Two men were still living who had witnessed the grim catastrophe of nearly a half century before. Marie Coutot, saved by his baton, and Julien Duvoisseau, saved by his barometer. These ancient men entered and approached the table. Duvoisseau, more than eighty years old now, contemplated the mournful romance mutely and with a vacant eye, for his intelligence and memory were torpid with age. While Coutet's faculties were still perfect at seventy-two, and he exhibited strong emotion and said, Pierre Beaumont was fair. He wore a straw hat. This bit of skull with the tuft of blonde hair was his, and this is his hat. Pierre Carriard was very dark. This skull was his, and this is his felt hat. This is Balmont's hand. I remember it so well. And the old man bent down and kissed it reverently, then closed his fingers upon it in an affectionate grasp, crying out, I could never have dared to believe that before quitting this world it would be granted to me to press once again the hand of one of my brave comrades, the hand of my good friend Balmont. There is something weirdly pathetic about the picture of that white-haired veteran greeting with his loving handshake this friend who had been dead forty years. When these hands had last met, they were alike in the softness and freshness of youth. Now one was brown and wrinkled and horny with age, while the other was still young and fair and blemishless, as if forty years had come and gone in a single moment, leaving no mark of their passage. Time had gone on in the one case, and it had stood still for the other. A man who has not seen a friend for a generation keeps him in mind always as he saw him last, and is somehow surprised and is also shocked to see the aging change of years and what they have wrought when he sees him again. Marie Coutet's experience in finding his friend's hand unaltered from the image which he had carried in his memory for forty years is an experience which stands alone in the history of man, perhaps. Coutet identified other relics as well, this hat belonged to Auguste Terraz. He carried the cage of pigeons, which we proposed to set free upon the summit. Here is the wing of one of those pigeons, and here is the fragment of my broken baton. It was by grace of that baton that my life was saved. Who could have told me I would one day have the satisfaction to look again upon this bit of wood that supported me above the grave that swallowed up my unfortunate companions? No portions of the body of Taraz other than the piece of the skull had been found. A diligent search was made, but without result. However, another search was instituted a year later, and this had better success. Many fragments of clothing, which had belonged to the lost guides, were discovered. Also, part of a lantern and a green veil with bloodstains on it. But the interesting feature was this. One of the searchers came suddenly upon a sleeved arm projecting from a crevice in the ice wall, with the hand outstretched as if offering greeting. The nails of this white hand were still rosy, and the paws of the extended fingers seemed to express an eloquent welcome to the long-lost light of day. The hand and arm were alone. There was no trunk. After being removed from the ice, 
the flesh tints quickly faded out and the rosy nails took on the alabaster hue of death. This was the third right hand found. Therefore, all three of the lost men were accounted for. Dr. Hamill was the Russian gentleman of the party, which made the ascent at the time of the famous disaster. He had left Chamonix as soon as he conveniently could after the descent, and as he had shown a chilly indifference about the calamity and offered neither sympathy nor assistance to the widows and orphans, he carried with him the cordial execrations of the whole community. Four months before the first remains were found, a Chamonix guide named Balmont, a relative of one of the lost men, was in London and one day encountered a hale old gentleman in the British Museum who said, I overheard your name. Are you from Chamonix, Monsieur Bolmont? Yes, sir. Haven't they found the bodies of my three guides yet? I am Dr. Hamel. Alas, no, monsieur. Well, you'll find them sooner or later. Yes, it is the opinion of Dr. Forbes and Mr. Tyndale that the glacier will sooner or later restore to us the remains of the unfortunate victims. Without a doubt, and it will be a great thing for Chamonix in the matter of attracting tourists. You can get up a museum with those remains that you will draw. The savage idea did not improve the odor of Dr. Hamill's name in Chamonix by any means. But after all, the man was sound on human nature. His idea was conveyed to the public officials of Chamonix, and they gravely discussed it around the official council table. They were only prevented from carrying it out by the determined opposition of the friends and descendants of the lost guides, who insisted on giving the remains Christian burial and succeeded in their purpose. A close watch had to be kept upon all the poor remnants and fragments to prevent embezzlement. A few accessory odds and ends were sold, rags and scraps of the coarse clothing were parted with at an equal rate to about $20 a yard. A piece of lantern and one or two other trifles brought nearly their weight in gold, and an Englishman offered a pound sterling for a single breech's butt.